0: Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Just a quick warning. That's douglas.ca slash Canadaland to claim this offer. Pictions and discussions of serious sexual violence so it won't be suitable for all listeners.
1: Former Nova Scotia Liberal Premier Gerald Regan has died. Regan was born in Windsor and was the Premier of the province from 1970 to 1978. He also served as a Member of Parliament in the House of Commons.
0: When Gerald Regan died last November, the tributes quickly started to pour in.
1: Flags at province house are at half-mast as the legislature marks the death of Gerald Regan, former Premier and Federal Cabinet Minister.
0: Former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, who served in federal cabinet with Reagan, fondly remembered his personality and praised his political service.
2: He was a, you know, a very competent minister and a very, very good politician. Great sense of humor. And he served very well, the people of
0: Halifax. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, Green Party leader Elizabeth May, and Prime Minister Trudeau all mourned his passing on Twitter. And Nova Scotia Premier Stephen McNeil applauded his accomplishments while he'd been in office.
2: My thoughts are with his family. I know many of them. As you know, Minister Reagan is his daughter-in-law, Jeff. I've known for a very long time. Uh, his government was one uh, that actually shared the fiscal responsibility as, as, as our government does in terms of delivering balanced budgets.
1: I was actually at home that day. My name is Maggie Rar, and I'm a journalist in Halifax, Nova Scotia.
0: Maggie Rahr found out about Regan's death through a tweet from
1: Premier McNeil. This was his tweet. Gerald Regan believed in the potential of Nova Scotia with a vision for a future prosperity. He governed with a true sense of liberal values, investing in people, creating economic development and ensuring fiscal responsibility. He was a dedicated public servant to his constituents, all Nova Scotians and Canadians. I extend my sincerest condolences to his wife, Carol, children, Jerry, Jeff, Miriam, Nancy, David, Laura, and loved ones. So, basically, when I read that, I felt enraged because the harms that Jerry Regan committed in his life and at work by abusing his role in the Liberal Party are Totally made invisible here. And I just that one word, all, when he said he was a dedicated public servant to his constituents, comma, all Nova Scotians and Canadians. It's like, okay, I guess we're just going to completely erase the fact that we know that he sexually violated at least 40 women.
0: Gerald Regan was a violent sexual predator. For decades, he victimized women in Nova Scotia and beyond, Most of his victims were young, some of them were children. But to Premier Stephen McNeil, that wasn't what was important to note.
2: All Nova Scotians will determine how they view uh, Mr. Regan's legacy. As the Premier of this province, I'm focused on the job that we shared in common, which was uh, leading a government.
0: McNeil is far from the only person to brush aside Regan's crimes. In 2016, Gerald Regan went to visit the House of Commons. His son, Jeff Regan, a longtime Halifax MP, had been elected Speaker of the House a year earlier. Liberal MP Dominic LeBlanc rose and addressed the fact that Gerald Regan was in the gallery. But Regan's crimes clearly weren't on his mind. Instead, he just wanted to joke about the new Speaker's dad showing up to watch his son at work.
2: Mr. Speaker, yes, um, perhaps I hope you could explain to the House, the house uh, what would be the
0: appropriate rules in terms of recognizing... Uh, people in the gallery. Let's say, for example, Mr. Speaker, a former premier of Nova Scotia were in the gallery today, former premier Gerald Regan. Would it be appropriate for the chair to recognize a former premier in the gallery? Sitting next to LeBlanc was Prime Minister Trudeau, who bursts out laughing. And then the entire House of Commons rises to give Gerald Regan one of the worst sexual predators Canadian politics has ever seen a standing ovation. Before Me Too, before Gameshi, there was Gerald Regan. For half a century, he raped and assaulted women throughout Nova Scotia. The scale and severity of his crimes are stomach-turning and hard to comprehend. Despite that, the Regan name still means something in Nova Scotia. Even today, the political establishment and much of the media refuses to reckon with Regan's wrongdoing. But the truth is that a child rapist held one of the highest offices in the land. And so many people knew about it and did next to nothing. I'm Mann, and from Canada-land, this is Commons.
2: Good evening, I'm Steve Murphy. Former Nova Scotia Premier Gerald Regan has been charged with 16 sex-related offences, including rape. Regan says he's not guilty. My reaction is one of anger. I am not guilty of these charges, and I have no doubt whatsoever but that I would not be facing charges on these ancient allegations if I had not been in public life.
0: Gerald Regan was charged on March 15, 1995, with 17 counts of rape, attempted rape, indecent assault, and forcible confinement. The charges were related to 13 different women. One of them had been underage at the time. The news was shocking to Nova Scotians. The Regans were already one of the most well respected political families in the province at the time. His daughter, Nancy Regan, was an anchor on the same network from the broadcast that you're hearing from. She took the day off work to accompany her father.
2: Gerald Regan arrived at the Bedford Courthouse this morning, accompanied by his wife and two of his daughters, including Nancy Regan, host of ATV's Live at Five.
0: And his son, Jeff, had followed in his father's footsteps and been elected to Parliament just two years earlier.
2: Son Jeff, a Halifax MP, was in Ottawa. I have confidence in my father's innocence, and we, his family, love him very much.
1: The Regans are an established, a very established political family here in Nova Scotia, absolutely, and they have been for decades. The idea that a sort of provincial politician could move on and to these sort of heights is, you know, still a big deal for Nova Scotians. I would say that the view of the Regans, at least in among the older generation, is that they are a middle of the road political presence that represent both fiscal responsibility as well as the basics of, you know, social concerns, if you will.
0: Stephen Kimber is a longtime Nova Scotian journalist who's written a book on Gerald Regan. And he's had his fair share of run-ins with him. He was a tall
2: guy. He towered over me and and, and I think probably a a fair number of people. He had a, as somebody who has one, I think of as a ski-slope nose. I mean, he was, you know, he wasn't handsome. He certainly had presence
0: and was forceful. To understand the story of the Regans, you have to understand the strange world of Nova Scotian politics. Regan was born into a politically active family in Windsor, Nova Scotia in 1928. But then again, every family in that part of Nova Scotia at the time was politically active. Rural
2: Nova Scotia uh, during those days uh, was pretty political. It was that you were born one or the other, which was conservative or liberal. You took it all very seriously. You hung out at the local newspaper office on election night where they would post the uh, results as they came in. So he was steeped in that kind of
0: political life as he grew up. From an early age, Gerald Regan would have witnessed the nitty gritty of the Nova Scotian political machines. The world in
2: which he came of age politically was one in which votes were bought. In those rural areas, for example, on polling day, the parties had people who wandered around the constituency and they, they you know, drove people to the polls, made sure, at, at least as much as you could, that they voted the right way and then went into the trunk of the car and brought out rum or nylons or whatever it was that was the gift of the day to convince people or to to make sure that people voted the right way.
0: And that was standard operating procedure. Gerald's father, Walter Regan, was a longtime town councillor and a Tory stalwart. His uncle had been deputy mayor of Halifax, and Jerry quickly set his eyes on politics too. By the 11th grade, Gerald Regan was student council president. The thing that you have to understand about Gerald Regan was that he was ambitious
2: as a politician, mostly for the sake of being an ambitious politician. He wanted to succeed at politics. He was less somebody who had a great uh, ideological or philosophical interest in politics.
0: One day, Gerald Regan met Angus MacDonald, the longtime liberal premier of Nova Scotia. He even stopped to shake young Gerald's hand. And from then on, Jerry had one goal. To climb the political ladder all the way to the top. After high school, Jerry Regan went to university. But he'd often skip class to do the play-by-plays at local hockey games. He made a name for himself as a sportscaster, especially when he started bringing over NHL teams to play in Nova Scotia in the offseason. He went to law school, became a lawyer, and gained a reputation fighting for the rights of workers. In the 1950s, he was one of only three lawyers in Nova Scotia that would represent unions regularly.
2: As a lawyer, he was you know, a successful sort of small-town lawyer, and he became very involved in the Liberal Party in Nova Scotia. Uh, that
0: was his ticket to success after that. At a Young Liberal convention, he met Carol Harrison, who would go on to be his wife. Here's Jeff Regan talking to CPAC about how his parents met.
2: Both of them happened to be attending a Young Liberals convention in 1954 in Ottawa. She was handing out souvenir bags of Saskatchewan prairie wheat on the front steps of the of the center block, and she handed one to a young lawyer from Windsor, Nova Scotia, oh my who was my dad. And you know, they still have the bag of wheat. They don't. <laughs> I think Dad was smitten, and uh, Mom reciprocated apparently.
0: Regan ran for MP under the Liberal banner and lost. He tried again the next election and lost again by an even bigger margin.
2: He got the nominations, he ran, he failed time and time again. And then finally, he was
0: elected federally in 1963. Gerald Regan was off to Ottawa. But his stay in the nation's capital would be cut short by his ambition. Even though he was viewed as a rising star, Regan was still in Nova Scotian at a time when the Liberal Party was turning towards questions of bilingualism and national unity there wasn't much room for a unilingual maritimer to move up. So when the opportunity arose, Gerald Regan moved back to his home province to run for the leadership of the Nova Scotia Liberals.
2: Five years later, after crisscrossing the province in a beat-up car, attending every local constituency meeting he could wangle an invitation to, he did finally win and become premier in 1970 the conservative government was just really tired. And I think that probably it's fair to say, as happens in many cases, Gerald Regan's liberals won, not so much because they won, but because
0: the conservatives lost. Here's Regan after he won.
2: I was very pleased with the majority in Halifax Needham. Uh, We had felt that we would do better than last time. I attempted to work very hard at representing the constituency, but I certainly didn't anticipate uh, such a majority of this size.
0: During his first mandate, Regan made a number of progressive moves. He got rid of the poll tax that sent poor people to jail. He established a law reform commission, lowered the voting age, and nationalized Nova Scotia Light and power. But his government wasn't underpinned by any kind of political conviction.
2: He was a guy who liked being called the premier. He was known as the Prime. That was his sort of nickname. He was happy enough to take reporters on tours around the halls of the legislature and point out whose portrait was who on the walls. And he knew how long they had served and how long he would have to serve in order to have become premier longer than they were.
0: Regan was also vindictive. Stephen Kimber is pretty sure that Regan got him fired from his job at the CBC. We had decided to do a
2: documentary about political patronage in Nova Scotia, going back to vote buying and contract uh, shuffling, and there was lots of evidence to support that. When the documentary appeared, I was told that Gerald Regan had informed my bosses, the the big bosses at the CBC in the region, that he would never appear
0: again as long as I was the host. And in short order, I was gone. Regan won a majority government in 1974, but the Liberals were already running out of steam. As time went on, I think, as often happens with
2: governments, he became more interested in staying in power than in any
0: ambitions. They were defeated in 78 on the back of high power prices. But Regan wasn't done yet. In 1980, he ran for the federal liberals, won, and was made a cabinet minister under Pierre Trudeau. Regan lost his seat in 1984 and then settled into a comfortable post-political life as an elder statesman. Just a warning, the next section is going to include some descriptions of graphic sexual violence that won't be suitable for everyone. From at least the time he was in his 20s, Gerald Regan would prey on young women.
2: He had a car, and so he would drive women home from, young women home from the skating rink and try to, to molest them in his car. And he felt entitled to do that. It was clear from what he said to these young women, that, that that this was
0: you know, his right. Now, we debated amongst ourselves how much detail we should go into here. We want you to understand the seriousness and the violent nature of what Gerald Regan did, but we didn't want this to slip into the salacious or the exploitative. So I'm going to tell you about the first person we know that Regan victimized and try to keep the details to what's essential from then on. Mary Graham, and that's not her real name, met Gerald Regan in 1953 when she was 17. He was 25. He used to give rides to her and her friends around the neighborhood. In a letter to Stephen Kimber, she said Jerry was talkative, mildly flirtatious, and seemed interested in them. Quote, he kind of singled me out. I was flattered to have this college-educated man show an interest in me, a high school girl. I liked talking with him. The first time they got physical in any way, Regan, quote, lunged at her out of nowhere to kiss her. It was sudden and uncomfortable. But she was willing to keep seeing him. Quote, We would talk a lot, neck a little, she said. I was able to keep through much protestation pretty well within my personal code of necking-only limitations. But on the day of their first real date, Gerald escalated. He parked his car in a secluded spot, and she says that Regan then raped her. Quote, Afterward, I was numb, terribly ashamed, as though somehow, even though I had protested vigorously and tried to push him away, it had all been my fault. Mary started to cry. Regan accused her of lying to him about being a virgin. He warned her not to tell anyone because his legal career could be ruined if she was, quote, stupid enough to tell. And he promised her that he would never do it again. But that was a lie. He would rape her many more times. Mary began to hear stories about Regan also attacking some of her friends when giving them rides. She eventually stopped seeing Gerald Regan, but his crimes escalated. Regan raped a 14-year-old girl whose mother he knew. The pattern was similar, a ride in a car, a random attack, a threat. She was scared and didn't tell anyone until one day she told a friend what had happened. It turned out Regan had tried to rape her too. She was 14 as well. At the time, he had just made his first failed run for office. And as the years went on, he would assault young women and girls again and again and again. He would grab a woman out of the blue without any preliminaries. It was not
2: sort of a a romance or anything else. It was sort of just a, you know, a, a quick grab. He'd drive his tongue down their throat. And then when it was over, he would stop. And he would continue as if nothing had happened. And he tended to pick on women who were small in stature, not very powerful, didn't have the wherewithal, in a sense, to challenge him. He made it very clear that they would not be believed and that he had credibility, they didn't. And that it would be sort of dangerous, in a certain sense, to challenge him on these things.
0: After he started a family with his wife, Regan began to attack his children's babysitters. We know of at least half a dozen babysitters who were his victims. Some he raped, some fought him off, few told anyone.
2: Then as he became a lawyer, there's the story of a a woman who came to see him who was dealing, I believe, with a divorce, and he attacked her. It just kept escalating, and what he did in many cases became more serious, and he
0: he was less likely to take no for an answer. Regan's violence didn't stop at the doors of the legislature. In 1969, when he was leader of the Nova Scotia Liberal Party, he sexually assaulted and attempted to rape an 18-year-old clerk. She told her mother and a neighbor who was a Halifax police officer, but they decided not to report Regan because of his power. And the next day, she was called into the office by the Liberal Party's executive director, and she was fired. When he was premier, he attacked numerous young women who came in looking for jobs at Province House. He attacked women in bars and at Liberal Party events. He assaulted two journalists in hotel rooms. Considering the scale and brazenness of his crimes, the obvious question to ask is what did the people around Gerald Regan know?
2: you'd have to be deaf dumb and blind not to have heard the stories of his boorish behavior with women i think that it's fair to say that most people who were associated with Regan knew he was boorish that he was lecherous you know you wouldn't want your daughter to be in a room with him alone sometimes you know the, there were people who sort of shepherded him out of rooms to make sure that things didn't happen I think at the same time, from my knowledge of people who were around Regan at the time, is that most of what happened that would, have, would be categorized as sexual assault happened in private. So they, did, they didn't necessarily know specifically what he was doing.
0: You know, to be fair, they also didn't spend a lot of time trying to figure it out. Here's what we do know. At least one senior minister in his cabinet walked in on him, attacking one of his staffers. He told Regan, quote, You keep your fucking hands off my staff. Regan stopped, but he faced no consequences. The Conservative Party of Nova Scotia had a file on Regan's sexual assaults, but they did nothing with it. And it's clear that Regan's predation of young girls was in some ways an open secret, with people making jokes about it. A Regan aide once yelled across a room, quote, Hey, Premier. I saw you with that 13-year-old, but don't worry, she had the body of a 9-year-old. Women working in the legislature were regularly told not to be in the same room alone with him. But there was one incident that would be the spark that eventually led to Regan's crimes becoming public. One day in 1977, an 18-year-old legislative page went to see Gerald Regan in his office. She was looking for his help to apply for a job. Once they were alone, the premier of Nova Scotia attacked her. She ran screaming out of his office
2: into the arms of the legislature's sergeant-at-arms, and
0: this was heard sort of all over the legislature. People knew that that had happened. Journalists soon heard about the assault. Some tried to report out the story, but the legislative page was hesitant to go public. But she was convinced by a female
2: reporter To record her recollections of of what had happened, and then the reporter gave her the the audio tape. And the idea was that if she ever did decide to go public, that the reporter would get the tape and be able to use it.
0: She took the tape back to her apartment, and then something strange happened.
2: There was a robbery,
0: and the only thing that was taken was the audio recording. The tape, where she described the premier of Nova Scotia sexually assaulting her in his office, was the only thing that was stolen. She went to the police, but they brushed her off and did nothing. Not many people knew about the recording, but what's become clear years later was that one person who did was Alan Stockle. Stockle was a corrupt union official turned developer, and at the time, he was trying to get the Nova Scotian Housing Commission to buy a property from him. The Provinces
2: Housing Commission had said no, Uh, and so there was a a meeting between Regan and Stockall at an airport in Toronto at some point, and apparently Stockall threatened him obliquely or directly with this tape and making it public. And what he wanted was the, the government to buy his property. They didn't do that, but they did give him a, a very sweetheart contract for a number of months before Reagan was defeated in the next election.
0: Premier Reagan was being blackmailed because he had sexually assaulted a legislative page, and it looks like he capitulated. And in all of this sordid affair, no one appeared to care about the woman who had been assaulted.
2: I think probably with the exception of the sergeant at arms who took care of her that night and made sure she got home, nobody really did pay much attention to her and her interests in all of this, which was, you know, also uh, both sort of standard operating procedure in this case, but also not uh, uncommon in terms of the times. People, you know, were told basically to suck it up. You know, this happened. Okay, uh, get on with your life.
0: The assault was the first in a series of events that would land Gerald Regan in court, but it would take over a decade for the law to finally catch up with him. After Gerald Regan attacked the legislative page in his office, journalists finally began to move on the rumors that had surrounded him for years. One of those reporters was Philip Mathias, who worked for the CBC's Fifth Estate. Philip interviewed a number of young women who had been assaulted by the premier. And he was shocked to discover that even a CBC colleague had been attacked by Regan in a hotel room. And he thought he had a case, and the CBC,
2: in the end, killed his story. And I think that Philip felt that, for whatever reasons, the CBC had killed the story to avoid problems with the federal government, with the liberals, with the, the ministry.
0: On the advice of lawyers, other publications had their stories killed, too. Regan was defeated in 1978 and his government fell, but two years later, he had been elected to parliament and Pierre Trudeau put him in his cabinet. Along with other portfolios, Gerald Regan was the minister responsible for the status of women. And for a while, it seemed like Regan would never be held accountable for his crimes Some people did try, however. As he was running for re-election in 1984, one man created a pamphlet and took it door-to-door in Regan's riding.
2: A Nova Scotia gadfly iconoclast named Mike Marshall knew about these stories or knew about some of the stories and had done some investigation and put together a pamphlet. Since nobody was reporting on this, he put together a pamphlet and took it door to door during the election campaign, really calling out Reagan and and being very clear on the, the fact that he had done these things. No mainstream media outlet would cover that, again, because of their lawyer's
0: advice. He didn't win re-election, but had little to do with the pamphleteering. The liberals were trounced all across the country. After he lost, Regan did what former politicians do. He got a cozy gig at a law firm. He served on corporate boards. But he didn't stop attacking women. In 1990, he sexually assaulted a fellow corporate board member in a Calgary hotel. Three years later, the police would finally begin to investigate Gerald Regan.
2: And the irony is that it wasn't revealed by somebody who was one of his victims,
0: but by one of his political enemies. Donald Ripley had been a former liberal bagman who had helped Reagan get elected. But Ripley felt he had been rebuffed by Reagan, and he lost a lot of money when Nova Scotia Light and Power had been nationalized. So
2: he nursed those grudges
0: for many years. He switched parties, he
2: became a conservative. And then he was a columnist for a local TV rag, I mean, basically, that you know had the listings and a couple of columns. He was one of the
0: columnists. And in 1993, he decided it was time the public knew about Regan's crimes. And at some point, he called Philip Mathias, the
2: CBC reporter who had done all the investigation and not gotten his story on air, and said, you know, basically, I'm going to write about
0: this. And he did. Ripley's column was a blind item about a powerful Nova Scotian who had been sexually abusing women for decades. But he got almost no response. And
2: he then went
0: off to the RCMP
2: with... What amounted to not very much at all. I mean, he didn't have any real evidence. He didn't have any complainants. He knew stuff in a vague way had happened, and he sort of directed them to Matthias, who under normal circumstances probably would have brushed them off. He was not somebody who was in the, the business of helping the police out to investigate things. He realized that this story, which was legitimate, was never going to be published by the people who had hired him at the time. So he agreed to meet with the Maudis and he gave them chapter and verse of the material that he gathered. And I think in his investigation, he'd gathered a dozen women and had gotten some of them on video talking about what
0: had happened to them. And suddenly the Maudis had something to go on. The RCMP was finally investigating. At first, they did it quietly, gathering evidence. But soon, the story leaked out, and Gerald Regan, he went on TV and loudly proclaimed his innocence. That interview was a tipping point. Many women who had been attacked by Regan were outraged by his denials, so they called the police.
2: And so suddenly the Mounties were inundated with women telling them these stories, some of whom were willing to go on the record
0: and uh, be witnesses. Two years after that initial blind item, the RCMP charged Gerald Regan with 17 counts related to 13 women. Regan hired Ed Greenspan, the best defense lawyer in the country. Here's Greenspan on the day Regan was charged.
2: I think this is an entire waste of taxpayers' money. I think this entire police investigation, which we have heard uh, from people that they've approached, uh, uh, was uh, high-handed and improper. This process has not been fair. It has been totally unfair. And it's because of who Mr. Regan is.
0: Now, if you're familiar at all with how most sexual assault trials of famous people go, you can guess how this went. First, the Crown began to drop charges and decided to focus on only the most serious charges. Regan's lawyers won a number of important procedural fights in court. The Crown attorney leading the prosecution was pulled off. And when Regan's victims were brought to the stand, Greenspan tried to shred their credibility. I think there's no
2: question that Eddie Greenspan, as a lawyer, was a bully. And he was a
0: good bully from a client's perspective, but certainly not from the point of view of justice. One of Regan's teenage victims had lied on a transcript when she was a child in the 1950s.
2: She had moved from one place to another, and she wanted to be with kids of her own age, so she had sort of minor fudging of her transcript so that she could get into the grade that she wanted to be in with the kids her own age. And by my recollection, it would have been about three days of cross-examination, focused on this one piece of paper, and the argument was, you would lie about that, you would lie about anything, you're lying about this.
0: Regan's lawyers tried to introduce reasonable doubt towards all of the allegations in similar ways. He dug up secrets from their past, like unwanted pregnancies, and weaponized them. He cast doubt on tiny details.
2: Eddie Greenspan, when he was cross-examining one of the women who said she'd been raped in a gravel pit, claimed loudly that it couldn't have happened, it didn't happen, there is no gravel pit on the road that you described, so nothing nothing happened, you're lying. And this came out in in the news stories, and again, the RCMP were inundated with
0: calls from people who said, I know where that gravel pit is, on this road, at this point. And though the charges against Regan were treated by the media's allegations— What the lawyers said about the accusers often wasn't. Here's Maggie Rahr again.
1: They were targeted viciously in the media at that time. Viciously. He had a very powerful built-in protective system around him. And when these women were being ripped apart in court, it was reported on in the media as fact. But
0: even as the trial was playing out, Stephen Kimber would hear from new victims.
2: I remember when I was covering the preliminary hearing, and I was teaching at, at King's at the time, and so I had to rush back to a meeting I was supposed to attend at the university, and, and I you know, made my apologies, and I said you know, what I was doing. And there were five people in the room, and three of the five had had experiences with Gerald Regan.
0: The jury had only been allowed to hear a small subset of the allegations against Regan, but on the day they began to deliberate, a publication ban was lifted on all of that information. The media was able to report on dozens of other allegations that the public had yet to hear. But it wasn't long until the jury returned their verdict. Not guilty on all charges. Gerald Regan was free to go. Appeals would follow, and legal wrangling continued for a few more years. But by 2002, the legal fight was over, and Gerald Regan's rehabilitation had begun. In the early days after the verdict, he was
2: shunned by not only sort of ordinary people, but also by those people who were his... Colleagues sometimes, his, his peers in politics and business, there were receptions he would attend and
0: people would turn their backs on him. But that stigma began to fade. He continued to work at a major law firm. He served on the boards of companies. He was quoted in the media. His son Jeff's political career continued to rise. And when his family background was raised, reporters studiously avoided questions about his father's sexual predation. Here's a CPAC interview between Jeff Regan and Catherine Clark, who also happens to be former Prime Minister Joe Clark's daughter.
1: Did your mom have any idea of what she was getting into when when she married your dad? Did she know that, that there was going to be politics in, in her life, not just from her dad? That's a good question.
0: Well,
2: clearly, dad was then? clearly dad was interested in politics yeah. because there he was at a convention, and it wasn't long before he started running for office. Right. And in fact, he ran four times unsuccessfully before he was finally elected. So your mom was a very supportive. Yes, she was.
0: When Me Too hit in 2017, politicians across Canada started to be outed for their misconduct in the workplace. The same was true in Nova Scotia. Serious allegations were made against a former MP and a sitting MLA. Maggie Rahr wanted to look into how the Nova Scotian legislature was approaching the issue
1: you know, I really wanted to understand this moment in time. And I wasn't seeing that reporting turn up anywhere, you know, beyond just the basic facts of these cases. And so I set out to try to do that. And really almost nobody responded to me. Like I I contacted every single MLA in the province. And ironically, one of the only people to respond was, The minister, then minister for the status of women, Kelly Regan, who was actually Jerry Regan's daughter-in-law.
0: The few responses she got were generic pablum, and no one was willing to grapple with the fact that a premier of Nova Scotia had been allowed to get away with such horrific crimes for so long.
1: You know, it's still a really small place down here, and there's this kind of like, oh, well, we all know what happened there, and we don't talk about it. You know, there's a culture of silence.
0: Whenever Gerald Regan was in the news, Stephen Kimber would get emails, phone calls. And after Regan's death, women once again got in touch.
2: Probably a dozen women emailed me, texted me, called me to say, you know, what had happened to them. And they were none of these people were involved in any of the trials or any of the criminal allegations against Regan.
0: When Gerald Regan died last November, there was one aspect that Maggie Rahr felt was totally missing from the coverage.
1: You know, like, we're not talking about colleagues who are the same age. In some cases they were, and no sexual violence is excusable, but one thing that I find shocking that was omitted from a lot of the coverage surrounding Jerry Regan's death just a few months ago is the fact that two of his victims were 14 and 18 years old. I mean, literal children. Can you imagine having that amount of power and trying to have sex with children or sexually violating literal children and then that never being mentioned again? I just find that so tragic and telling. And the
0: scale of Regan's crimes are still hard to wrap your head around more than three dozen women have publicly accused Gerald Regan of sexual assault over a half century. That doesn't include the dozen women who contacted Kimber after Regan's death. The many
2: allegations that were made by so many women, the fact that you could not go anywhere in Nova Scotia and not run into someone who either had experienced themselves or knew somebody who had experiences with Regan, it does lend credence to the reality that there were Probably hundreds of women who had unhappy encounters with Gerald Regan over the years.
1: I remember somebody telling me when I I was a little girl, and I can't remember who it was, but somebody said for every one letter, like handwritten letter, if a politician receives one letter, you can assume there are a hundred like it in terms of public sentiment. And that's always really stuck with me, especially now that I've you know ended up reporting on a lot of cases involving sexual violence. And I mean, listen, when you have 40 known women who say they were violated, what more do you need to know that that is only the beginning? I think it's so horrifying that There are people who will still say, well, that wasn't proven in court. Or, you know, they just want their 15 minutes of fame. It's like fame of of having your whole life ripped apart and being treated like a liar and having these trolls chase you around until the end of time. It's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. If we have 40 known, then God knows how many victims... Of Gerald Regan's are A living and B dead now.
0: your episode of commons for the week this episode relied on reporting done by Stephen kimber maggie rar cbc's fifth estate ctv news and global news if you want to learn more check out Stephen kimber's book aphrodisiac sex politics power and gerald Regan, and maggie rar's reporting in the coast if you want to get in touch with us you can tweet us at commons pod you can also email me arshi at canadalandshow.com This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish, our managing editor is Kevin Sexton, and our music is by Nathan Burley If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash canadaland